are listening to a Called Collective podcast, where we seek to equip the next generation of ministry leaders. The Called Collective produces multiple podcasts, which you can find in the description below. To learn more about The Called Collective, visit our website at thecalledcollective.org or check us out on Instagram at The Called Collective. and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where we study a scripture passage, usually drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm professor of New Testament and spiritual formation for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. My guest this week is Ken Shank, regular listeners to the show uh, Ken is no stranger to them. Ken's been on lots of times. Uh, he's an excellent guest and a fantastic New Testament scholar. And he works, uh, he's vice president for partnerships with strategic partnerships with a company called Campus EDU. He's been a professor and a dean and all sorts of things at a number of different institutions, including here at IWU not too long ago. And he is uh, one of my first teachers of the scriptures, and I love it when he's on the show. So I'm so thankful that he's here. Our text this week is Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. That's Matthew 21, 23 through 32. Uh, Our show is now part of the Called Collective Network. Make sure to subscribe to some of our other shows, uh, such as Modern Parables and Good Days uh, and a number of other shows. Uh, make sure to subscribe uh, to, to all our shows, and we appreciate Called Collective and all the work uh, that they do on the show here. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening, and enjoy this conversation with Ken. Awesome. So if you'd be willing to read Matthew 21, 23 through 32, that would be... Awesome. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why then didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for everybody regards John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. (laughs) And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he said, I'm going, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. 
But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word, for your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and for this moment that we have to just see him discussing, debating in the temple in Jerusalem. And we just ask, Lord, that uh, as Ken and I study this passage and discuss it together, that both he and I and all those listening in uh, would be guided by your Spirit, whether wittingly or unwittingly, that your Spirit would be at work guiding us along the way of all truth. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so what comes to mind right away when you look at this, uh, this little debate here? That we'll, we'll focus on the first half, at least, as we get started. Well, I just think, I mean, obviously Jesus is, is God, but he's, he's really clever. <laughs> I, I just, uh, these, these uh, debate, the agonistic kind of contesting of uh, Mark 12 and then here in, in Matthew 21, just so delightful to watch Jesus skewer his opponents. <laughs> but um, um, I wish I could learn, you know, his tricks. But anyway, so that, I mean, that's just the first thing that jumps into my mind. He he has a way of turning the tables on on his interlocutors, you know, to where he doesn't he doesn't get into the traps they set, which he shows he's, the, the, he's the winner. That winner is Jesus. So surprise. It's funny in the in the Gospels, we have these very early scenes of Jesus calling disciples to follow him. And on the one level, I think the the narrative is presenting to us this kind of almost out-of-the-blue character of their discipleship, right? So in terms of the narrative, it's like, well, okay, drop your nets and follow this random guy, you know? And it's just movement of the Spirit, right? But when you, when you sit back and think about it and think, okay, he was probably already known as some kind of rabbi, you know, when you start to kind of reconstruct the history behind the text a little bit. And they may have seen him pull moves like this. I mean, this is, this is at the end of his career. So he's, he's the master now and he's got a crowd backing him up. So when you've got a crowd, when you're working the crowd, you have an edge, right? So that back in Galilee, you may not have had the crowd with him yet, but they may have seen him. Yeah. I mean, I'm just wondering, I'm kind of imagining that there may have been a little of this. Of course, Luke is hinting at this when he was a little child in the temple was already kind of a master debater or whatever. I wonder if some of those first disciples actually kind of saw him at work and were impressed with how did, how's this kind of unlearned, unlearned Nazarene, you know, just moving circles around old rabbis in the synagogue in Capernaum. Any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, I, I don't know how it all put together, but I've always, in my kind of novelizing of Yeah, the story, yeah, that's what I'm doing here. I, I, I admit um, it's all speculative, but... Uh, I've, I've always kind of wondered, not always, but John... That if they kind of met him going down to see John the Baptist, kind of like you've got this group, man, hear what's going on down in Judea. There's this crazy man by the Jordan yeah. River baptizing people. Let's go see, you know. And and Jesus goes down from Nazareth, and I, I guess Peter's from Bethsaida, isn't he? You know, you, yes. You, you kind of all you're, you're kind of walking down the Jordan River because that's the easiest you know path, and uh, you kind of meet people. You know, you're yeah. you're sitting. You know, it's a three-day journey. Maybe you're, you you run into a bunch of people, and I've always wondered if they just kind of 
ran into him on that trip. And then maybe he comes back with them and spends time in Capernaum. I, I don't know. You know, I but but all that's all the that is to say is that in my novelizing version, he didn't just ra- randomly go up yeah. to strangers and and call people fishing. In my version, you know, these are people that he's kind of. I mean, they may not know him well, and I suspect when you've met Jesus, there's something a little different about this guy. Yeah, you know, something magnetic, something you want you want to know more. Um, yeah, and among the things that you noticed was just the way he just could kind of cut through an issue the way he does here, where he can ask a question back. Just doesn't um, care about the things that other people care about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, he cares about the important things, not the superficial things. But how's, how does your novel go? <laughs> well, I mean, my, I, I don't compose coherent novels, so I have lots of uh, contradictory <laughs> ones in my mind. But, but I have been thinking about how, especially lately, Eusebius makes a comment from the notion that John is different than the synoptics is not like a thing that modern people notice. This was a problem early on, right? And all the the great kind of early Christian scholars discussed this and had, and there's a wide variety of opinions about how to relate the synoptics to, to John, Augustine, Origen, Eusebius, they all have different takes. And Eusebius has a comment about and, and Eusebius isn't a particular original thinker, so I'm guessing he's getting this from somebody else. Uh, no insult to Eusebius. I mean, he's just a he's a he's a hander on of received wisdom, right? So, right. That, so, the, so actually, he's very relevant for very, knowing what was in. Very the, happy he exists, right? He's handing on often what's in the water. He's sometimes a better witness to what was thought in kind of more preachers around the church, as opposed to Origen might often re- be representing pretty some outlier opinions as well as Augustine, although his opinions become the mainstream after, but, right. but may not have been when he said them, right? Anyway, so, so sorry about all that about Eusebius, but he, I've been just fascinated by this comment that he makes that's very astute that J- John, when he went to write his gospel, was wanted to include, the reason he wrote his gospel was he hands on the tradition that, that he was old when he wrote it and all that, but that he wanted to add information about the early years of Jesus' ministry that's missing from the synoptics. Now, whether that's a whether that was the intention of the author of the fourth gospel is irrelevant to the fact that that's an astute observation that that basically, if you just kind of take those first five chapters of John, they all could kind of just you could squeeze them right in between chapter two and three of Matthew, and they would actually kind of fit because there's no issue there except for obviously the temple clearing is a whole problem. But we'll leave that aside for a moment. And the notion that it actually kind of makes more historical sense to think that Jesus had a kind of half a year or year of interactions with a much more ambiguous disciple crowd. There's no talk of 12 until chapter 6 of John, right? That there was a more kind of, yeah, some kind of loose collection of students that were from John the Baptist's circle would be. So, yeah, I guess that was a really long way of saying I agree with your novel, but I mean that there'd be this and that he already had a kind of ministry down south in Judea, perhaps for a little while. And then things maybe got a little heated and made his way back to up north and settled down in Capernaum. And so that moment when he calls them, it's a shift from being a, a, a student who comes back and forth, but actually leaving your life to kind of be a more permanent, like this is going to, we're going to have a whole new lifestyle. We're going to go out in the desert and uh, and and start healing people. Eat, eat and, locusts. No. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> right? 
we're going to go do something a little more, uh, a little crazier, right? And then, of course, the death, the death of John the Baptist. Again, I don't, I've not written the novel, so to speak, but it seems like well, the this death, passage is about John the Baptist. The death so of John the Baptist, it. it seems to me, could have been a trigger. Which gospel signals that? One of them actually mentions that. I can't remember if it's Matthew or one of the others. And actually in Acts, finish your thought. Sorry, I cut yeah. you off. No, just, you know, you could get the impression that Jesus kind of isn't in full ministry until after John the Baptist is arrested, and then he steps into that. It's time to take over, so to speak. He must increase, I must decrease. Right. Um, it's, and it's not insignificant that Mark chooses to narrate the death of John the Baptist in conjunction with the feeding of the 5,000 which appears in all four Gospels and may be a significant turning point in Jesus' career, especially since John includes that little detail that they want to make him king by force, right? So that there, there may have been a decision moment there about what kind of Messiah am I going to be. So I, and there's even this stray comment in a sermon, I think it's in Paul's sermon in Acts, where it's Acts 13, 25, he says, as John was finishing, before his coming, it says, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. I love thinking about how Paul learned all this, (laughs) since he wasn't around for it. but. But as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, you know, sandals, all that famous quote. But it's that phrase, as John was finishing his course, as if to imply there was this... transition. Yeah, the, the, at least the early church remembered John the Baptist as his ministry wrapping up and this kind of moment of handoff. And of uh, course, I think we actually did the passage where John <laughs> asks, you know, is are you the one or, or do we wait for someone someone else? It didn't occur to me this morning when yeah. I opened this up and I was like, oh, shoot, I'm doing like, I'm kind of pigeonhole you as a John the Baptist guy. It was not planned. <laughs> James McGrath, my friend, is, is the John the Baptist guy. He's it got was, it all solved. It uh, was not a plan. But interesting that John the Baptist is already dead, perhaps for a a while now, and that he's that that just bringing up his name can throw off the whole. (laughs) Right. And and it makes you wonder how widely he Jesus himself was associated with John the Baptist, especially down in Judea, where he was not maybe as well known, but that he may have even been known as, oh, this is one of one of the. You know, I think when it, you know, this is someone who's picking up the legacy. Yeah, and I think uh, in my again in my reconstruction, the the John the Baptist movement didn't end with the death of John the Baptist. I mean, we we read significant in Acts, evidence Acts, in Acts nineteen. Right? You know, you've got followers of John the Baptist that don't know about Jesus apparently out in the diaspora too. In out yeah. in Ephesus, and you've got Apollos is a follower of John the Baptist who doesn't apparently either know about Jesus or hasn't you know, sealed the deal on Jesus until Priscilla and Aquila, you know, lead him across the line. And in, again, in my reconstruction of things, I wonder, I didn't come up with this, if the reason why those early chapters of the Gospel of John make such a distinction about John the Baptist being secondary, and in fact, John doesn't narrate the baptism itself, mm-hmm. um, is because that there were still, even in the late first century, uh, a John the Baptist movement in Perhaps Ephesus. in Ephesus, yeah. where the Gospel of John's associated. Right, where... And we don't know for sure. That but. they don't believe in Jesus, uh, but they believe in John the Baptist. And so that would definitely suggest that, you know, three years later, maybe, that 
Jesus bringing him up. This is not just some guy that faded away three years ago. Right. But but if it was big in the 90s, it must have been huge still. Um, in Judea in, in the, the 30s. 30s. Yeah, so. Wow. And in the 30s, like by the 90s, probably the Jesus movement is already clearly differentiated from right. John the Baptist sure. movement. And perhaps both are starting to be differentiated from the synagogue, potentially, or not. I mean, that's a whole other complex question. <clears throat> Let's just say the relationship to the synagogue is more complex in the 90s than it is sure. in the 30s. How's that? Sure. A, since I didn't get your agreement on the first way of putting it. But um, but that, but back in the 30s, it was probably an open question, who's taking up John's mantle, right? right? Probably every Passover, people are saying, who's, who's the new John the Baptist? Or even who is the the one who is to come within the John the Baptist uh, chapter. Yes. So it's not just the, I mean, this is interesting. Uh, Keep talking, yeah. The Jesus movement is not just still within Judaism. It's within the Baptist movement within Within Judaism, Judaism, perhaps. Yes. See, that's so fascinating. Yeah, so, and it's probably quite clearly that... You know know what I mean by We know what you mean, right? Don't want to give too much credit to the Baptist. I mean, in my notes, I always write JTB, <laughs> JTB, JTB. Well, it's it is funny. I was thinking of, yeah, I, I I had Baptist friends in seminary who used to talk about how like, well, the first, you know, the first <laughs> baptisms. <laughs> Baptists, we're the oldest Christian movement. <laughs> we're from before the death of Jesus. I mean, they always said it with a with a little wink. You know, they didn't buy it. You know, so they, they beat the Nazarenes then. But yeah. he they would tell me some of the historian friends among my Baptist friends would tell me that. There is almost like an apostolic succession theology in Baptist circles that kind of hand that there's always this underground movement of low church thinking that starts with John the Baptist and continues. I, I just I it's mean, a different yeah. kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like this. It's this persistent movement through the history. Yeah, but to think of of the the Jesus movement as, but probably com- there may be competing. Yeah, absolutely. factions within the John because when there's a yeah. big figure, there's always the aftermath and the legacies contested over. Yeah. And you could imagine Socrates, right? You could imagine some more revolutionary wings. Yep, of the JTB crowd. You Simon, could, you could yes, you could imagine some more quietist, go out in the desert type, and then probably some elements that were, yeah, just more rabbinical and just kind of discussing. You know, you could see Pharisees getting into the John the Baptist thing and talking about, you know. So it's not, let, let that, that brings us back to the text, and we'll, I'll point this out, and then we'll take a break and come back, that the text itself highlights that this is not, as we're used to in most of the book of Matthew, as well as the other Gospels, especially Matthew, that his debates are with the Pharisees. This one is importantly not with the Pharisees. This is with the chief priests and the elders of the people. So... They're the ones asking about authority here. So let's just noting that, let's come back to that after a break, all right? All right. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, uh, Ken Shank, and we're looking at Matthew 21, 23 through 32. It's kind of two passages, but they're... Also kind of linked, because John the Baptist comes up in both. First is this, this, challenge, this question of Jesus' authority and his counter-question, and then he does a little parable here. What's, what's going on there? What, 
what's the shift here from, you know, Pharisees as his primary interlocutors to priests and scribes here? What are, I mean, chief priests and elders, excuse me. What's at stake in that distinction? Maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a little anachronistic, but it seems to me that, at least using my modern categories, that the chief priests would be more interested in political dimensions, and the, the Pharisees are more interested in religious. I mean, again, they don't they don't divide those things, but as like, we understand those terms, but like yeah. the the priests are concerned about mobs, they're concerned about uh, the Romans. The Pharisees may genuinely be concerned about the relationship with God, you know, however misguided they sometimes may have been. In chapter 22, they do the taxes to Caesar question, which of course is a political question, although they're trying to trap him, right? They're right. trying to get him in trouble. They're on a, actually on a religious thing. Because yeah. it's related to the the temple tax, right? Right. And so it'd be something that would be important to them. And then the Sadducees come now. Of course, the chief priests are Sadducees, but by naming them as Sadducees here, it's kind of focusing on them in yeah. terms of their ideology yeah. rather than yeah. their power, correct? Yes, yeah. I would say. And you'd have Sadducees who aren't themselves chief priests sure. that are just kind of in— And priests the, that weren't Sadducees. Right. They'd be the party hitting all these different, you know, and even that one's followed by, well, we won't get—I don't want to get too far ahead because really I want to look backwards and note— that he's, he's being asked here, by what authority do you do these things? Is that what it says? These yes. things. So um, in context, these things is the cleansing of the temple, right? I assume. Because they didn't see him do the fig tree bit. That's just kind of a... Yes, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, so it's very Roman conscious. The, the action in the temple is probably what got him in trouble, is what you were pointing out. Yeah, um, that that um, that we like to think of the the priests as as being all theologically upset about Jesus and who he's claiming to be and all that, and I'm not saying that isn't the case, but it may very well be that they were more concerned about their own skin, you know, the Romans mm. taking away their authority or there being violence by the Romans, you know, to try to crack down on stuff. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So is a John, phrase from John, John 11, eleven, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So this makes perfect sense. I mean, there are several places in the Scripture where someone asks a question, and they're kind of asking on a low-level kind of question, and the response is a high-level yeah. kind of kind of answer. Like I always think of the jailer, you know, what must I do to be saved? Meaning, how can I keep you guys from leaving the jail so I don't get killed? Paul says, well, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you know, taking it to a whole, different, whole different plane. And so the, they, they may be like, why are you doing this? You know, who— who are you? I mean, we like to think, well, everybody knew Jesus. I mean, some no. of them may have barely known who this guy was. They may have asked each other, but well, why is he doing this? Yeah. On on what basis does he have the right to do this? And someone says, and maybe even John the Baptist has already come up in there before they come to him. Oh, isn't he one of John the Baptist's successors, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or oh, actually, some of the people think he's the one that John was predicting. Oh, boy, let's go ask, you know? And if they're like a lot of people who in a certain role, think they're self-important, you know, they, they might not have taken, oh, there's another gnat, you know, walking mm. around, you know, who cares, they're not important, I'm important, you know. And then suddenly he thrusts himself upon them by causing this, this stir in the temple. Like, what are you doing, man? You know, then they have to pay attention. By what authority are you doing these things? 
And interestingly, you're right, it's got that. Who gave you this authority? Now, us as readers and them, the first readers of this text would have been like, oh, we know who gave him yeah. this authority, yep. right? This is from the Father, right? But that's not how they're, they're not thinking. They're thinking. And then this, uh, from heaven or from humans? Yep. The baptism of John. Where does it come from? From heaven or from humans? They're stuck. Because they know if he says from heaven, then... He says, well, why aren't you part of this movement? Right. Why are you opposing this movement? But if we say from humans, and it just says we are afraid of the crowd, which is kind of a unexplained, but I assume... Or there's a little uh, an aside for all hold that John was a prophet. Uh, is that them talking? Or is that meant to be the narrator? I would, I would have guessed the, the narrator. Oh no! In in um, yeah, at the end in, of twenty six. In uh, in the NRSV, it has it in the quotes. If that matters, not that that's gospel. You could, yeah. Is that I, past I mean, tense? It says uh, verse twenty six, right? Present tense. If, if we should say from humans, fearing the crowd, for all have him as have John as a prophet. So that sounds like that's them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are times when you can oppose certain things and there are times where as a leader you kind of don't you may you, may you know where the crowd's going yeah and um <clears throat> i can imagine where are my people going that yeah. i may lead them right <laughs> um yeah i mean think of you think of issues like there are issues that i could bring up freely in 2012 that i can't or that i, I at least second guess bringing up in 2000 you know 23 um, sure because of the context and so, um, but your opinion may not have even changed, right? So I can you know there's going to be heat around a topic. I can totally see them kind of not bringing up John the Baptist, you know, or if you're having polite conversation with somebody in the crowd, you know, which you probably aren't because you're important and they're not. But you know, you're you're not going to diss them when they when they say, "Wasn't John the Baptist great? He was just wonderful." Yes, vote for me. Uh, he, was, <laughs> he was great. <laughs> But in a different circumstance, you would totally, you know, crucify him. Yeah, in private. I mean, it's clear what their opinion is. They're not fans of John the Baptist, it seems. Right. Or am I re misreading that? Oh, I think that's definitely yeah. implied. Yeah. And and the, this is another thing about the, the priests and the Sadducees. I think they did eventually join, like, the Jewish war as it was inevitable. You know, but you've got a nice gig. You know, the, yeah. you're in charge. The Romans are, I mean... Your great great grandfather the, made a deal with Julius the, Caesar, right? The Vichy government, or whatever. You know, you're yeah. you're doing great. You don't want revolution. You don't want the day of the Lord. You don't want change of mind. You know, because that that means you're out, or at least you're not in the center anymore. Yeah, and you said the religious and the political is a distinction that's foreign to them, but the beginnings of that distinction has roots in Roman law, in a sense, because of the way the Romans managed the respect of local custom and cult. I mean, so it's not that the religion that they were overseeing was apolitical. It was very sure, political. Sure. But it, there was a political distinction between where the Romans supervised things because they, they were given a kind of sphere of authority. Sure. Even the question around Jesus' crucifixion is connected to this insofar as it seems – the gospels seem to imply that up to capital punishment, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted, right? But once it hits capital punishment, unless yep. it's like a mob stoning – right. If it's actually going to be a formal execution, they kind of have to bring the Romans involved. And there seems to be some evidence that that makes sense in that time, that, that, that the Romans, that capital punishment would be kind of their business. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the, I think it's 
is it the Persians that first really implement this localized, right. you know, kind of, which is brilliant. You know, otherwise you're always, you're always looking to have a, you know, an uprising somewhere because they don't like your imposed, but let, let the people, you know, kind of feel like they're in charge a little bit. Yeah. So the, so the Greek empire picks this up and the Romans, it's, it's particularly easy for the Romans to do because they're not particularly in love with their own religion anyway. Yeah. You know, they're, they're a lot, they're, they're a little more crassly focused on. They're pragmatists. Yeah. There, there's a pragmatism in the Roman empire that kind of is like, okay, well, we'll strike a deal with, let them run things. So they had a lot of power and, and that power is being disrupted by this action in the temple. And so he just with genius cleverness puts a question back to them. Now, how is it, okay, this always bugged me in this passage. Like, how is it that he gets to not answer their question just because he asked them an irrelevant question? Like, this is something that, like, when you're arguing with someone else, this is an infuriating thing, right? Right? Like, okay, I'll answer yours, but you have to answer mine first. <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes sense in terms of public, we have to see this as a public dispute. There's a probably an honor-shame thing here, right, where they're kind of, they're refusing to answer questions, so they kind of lost their maybe authority to ask him a question, at least in the moment. And I don't, I don't know I how mean, to read that though. You know, following our line of thinking, it may be that his—it's not like his response question is completely irrelevant to their true, question, true, because he is part of—I mean, he's like we were saying—he's connected with the the Baptist movement. So, in a sense, he's saying, "You know the answer." It's the same answer to the question of of John the Baptist. Oh, geez, that's I didn't honestly and, I didn't see that. Again. And so that's great. So you know you you know why don't you tell me the answer because I if whatever your answer is to John the Baptist that's the same answer you know in in my case as well. I mean that's just my my thought because even though he doesn't use the word authority in his question about that in some sense he's asking that question by what authority and from whom. Did John receive his authority to baptize? Is that? Yeah. <clears throat> yes. It's the same. It's one and the same authority behind John the Baptist and and, oh, and me. Gosh, that's, that's so obvious thought. now that you say it. Well, no, I, 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 that, that. So he's getting at the real issue underneath. Yeah. Are you listening to the authority of God that's operating outside your systems of centralized power? God's doing something. Right. Here. God's been doing something for a little while now. You know, have you been paying attention? Oh, that's so perfect. That's so helpful. Well, let me ask then, from a literary point of view, Matthew now then follows with this parable. Now, sometimes if something just happens to be next to it, you don't want to overthink that, especially Matthew, who's famous for collecting things that are spread out in Luke, you know, he'll put them all together. But it appears that this parable is only in Matthew, unless my synopsis is lying to me. It's only in Matthew. Well, I mean... The comment at the end is also in Luke, but... And then it ends with a comment about John the Baptist. So we know it's still, it's meant to, these really are a unit, but I see you grinning because I think maybe you're thinking of another two sons or... <laughs> yes. I mean, the parable of the prodigal son is analogous in many respects to this. It, this is a kind of a, in Nuche, the parable of the prodigal son, I think. Oh, yeah. Which then maybe even helps with, because of course that appears only in Luke. So a more... Uh, a bolder synopsis would place that here to say, hey, compare. <laughs> Although there's no textual, they're, they're different stories, but you could see that behind them, there could have been some oral traditions that had some overlap. Is that? 
Yeah, I mean, you have two sons, one of whom goes to a faraway country. I'm not going to work in the field. But in the end, yeah, he comes back and works in the field. The other son says, I'm going to go work in the field, literally, and then won't come in. Turns out he's not really yeah, submissive the, to his the father. the reversal, reversal of, of trajectories in both, both cases. So slightly different in the details, but similar dynamics. You have two sons, one of which represents the, the lost sheep of Israel um, that responds very positively uh, to Jesus' message of redemption and re- reclamation. The other one, the elder brother of Israel, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the ones who are the healthy, mm-hmm. um, who you would think would be most likely to respond positively to God's movement, but in the end they reject what God is doing. And you even have a nice ge- geographical parallel where the chief priests and the fair, the chief priests and the the elders of the people are there in the house of God in Jerusalem, running the sure. temple, whereas John the Baptist is out even far across country. the Jordan, in the far country, as it were, as well as the all of the Galilee. tax collectors and prostitutes who would not be welcomed in the temple because they're unclean. Correct. Right. So the, these are the that they're as it were the the pigs, <laughs> as far sure. as they're concerned. Sure. Right. They're the swine that you that would make you unholy. So there is even a kind of geography to it, right? <laughs> yeah. The in the the center Location. and the margin. Yeah. So, I mean to me it 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 fits and it goes on with the parable of the, the wicked tenants, you know, which is again that that two parties, those that respond positively to Jesus, those that don't respond positively to Jesus, those that are were voted most likely to be righteous in high school, mm. you know, who end up not being righteous, and those who were voted most likely to not be righteous, who end up um, redeemed. So anyway, and there's a there's a striking phrase at the end of that sequence of that parable, that next parable, which is next week's episode. So we won't get into the parable, but just for context, it says, "When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them." Now, notice the Pharisees are there too. Yeah, and then it says. But when they tried to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. That's that same construction yeah. that they said earlier that the crowds hold John, John the Baptist to be a prophet. They're also finally realizing, oh, shoot, the crowds feel about him just as much as they felt about John. So our hands are tied. We got we to gotta come up with something more clever. Hence the tr- the switch to then some more tactics, some more subversive tactics with the Garden questions. Of Eden, night, well, even before operation. that, the, the dialogues continue, but they're more kind of roundabout. They start asking him sort of roundabout questions. Covert. Right, right. But then eventually, yeah, Garden of Eden, all that is where it ends up. But And uh, of course, 30, 32 is it can, brings John back in. Right, right, right. Let's, let's end there. John came to you in the way of righteousness. You didn't believe him. Yeah. Um, so it's not just Jesus, it's not just response to Jesus, but it started with their response to John, and now they're the same response to... Uh, it's interesting that that uh, he says here, I didn't yeah. notice this before, the tax collectors and prostitutes believe John. He must have had followers in that. I mean, so he was a repentance, called repentance is going to be very attractive to... I mean, you know, if you're on the outskirts and someone's saying, hey, God's coming back soon, if you repent, all your life is... Ir- you know, none of that's going to be held against you if you can start fresh today, right? That's that. 
That's interesting. I've never noticed that before. I mean, I, mean, I it, it has always made sense to me that Jesus was reclaiming individuals on the margins. I, I'd never really thought of John the Baptist as as doing that as well, but that seems to be what this is saying. Yeah, there's a in John seven it says when they heard this, all the people and the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So Luke also has in agreement the notion... Hand off. Yeah, that at least tax collectors, doesn't have prostitutes mentioned, but that there were tax collectors in the, in the Baptist movement. That's at yeah. least John is signaling that. So that means this whole prostitutes and tax collectors, the inclusion of the wicked, was not a, a, a Jesus, Jesus innovation. Yeah. It was actually already happening in the John. Although it's worth mentioning, not, not that I don't, I mean, I believe what Jesus is saying here, but it's possible that that was a minor theme in the, in the right, John the sure. Baptist movement. An emphasis. And part of what, or in part of what stuck out about Jesus was he made that the main theme. Right. That's possible. I'm not, I mean, I've always, just given what we know, that dang- seems to be there. It's dangerous to psychologize Jesus. I've always wondered if. It's dangerous, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, did people know that Mary got pregnant you know, before they were officially, you know, I could I could totally see Jesus growing up under a kind of stigma. Mm. You know, remember that Mary had him. You know, got pregnant with him before. You know, they were actually married. That that would be a perfect uh, psychological, you know, in a Freudian way, kind of setup for a focus on on the the, the marginal. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you grew up with everybody basically putting you on the margins. And I realized that we got, well, how does this divine mind go, you know, we, we go off, we've gone off on those tangents before, I suspect. But anyway. But at the very least, there's a sensitivity to the the judgment and shaming that comes from. I've always seen J- John as more macroscopic, more all of Israel uh, repent. Everybody needs to repent. Yeah. Whereas Jesus seems to have really focused on yeah. a certain part of Israel. Uh, maybe I'm wrong in that. In that way of, of thinking about it. Yeah, so there was there was that element there. He was in the way of righteousness, but the tax collectors, they even believed him. But even when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. It's almost as if that was the sign. Hey, if, if even the wicked are repenting... Then what's wrong with you? Right, right? The, the, the very wickedness that you are trying to correct is being, quote, corrected freely through the baptism of John, how is that not the sign that this is a good thing? Although here maybe we blur into the, th- the third segment where when you, when you have authority, when you have status, when you have, you have, you have something to lose by yes. repenting, whereas when you're already <sighs> on the margins, you, what do you have to lose? You're only going to go up. That's perfect. Well, let's uh, pause there and then come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Ken Shank, and we're looking at Matthew uh, chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. So, Let's explore some sermon starters. You already kind of gave us the beginnings of one right there at the end, picking at the end of the passage and then working back. Just when you have, it's harder to repent when you have something to lose. Was that the? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, say just say a little more about that 
in connection with the text or in connection with well, our I mean, lives, this, you know? This is a, I mean, it's a trope, you know, but it's, that doesn't make it wrong that, well, you say one of Satan's tactics is to make you rich or to just make everything worldly comfortable, you know, to you. you know, then you don't have to think about God. You, you know, if you're, you're dying of a disease or you're, you know, you have a, you have a loved one who's in a perilous situation or, or you don't know where your next paycheck's going to come from, prayer is something that automatically kind of comes to mind. So the, the, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, I, my sense is they had pretty comfortable situation. I mean, the Pharise- chief priests for sure. Chief I mean, priests, yeah. Be... Sadducees, you know. So there's no motivation to listen to some guy dressed in camel's hair, you know, out out on, on the edge of. He's not even on the Judea side, you know. He's on the other side of the river. Yeah. Um, why listen to him until he starts influencing people, or until some guy overturns all the tables in the in the temple precincts, you know, and then, and the, the and the dang know, crowd thinks he's a prophet. So and Pontius Pilate says, "Hey, what's going on down there?" Yeah. Then, then you've got my attention. <laughs> um, Something to lose. Yeah. Whereas the tax collectors, I mean, prostitutes especially. I mean, I doubt, I doubt there's any prostitute that, you know, is a little girl and says, "I want to be a prostitute." When I, I mean, it's the situation of life that forces a person mm-hmm. into that kind of a situation. You, you don't you don't just do that because you're wicked or, or whatever. You do that because you have no other option, you know. So, uh, and I've wondered if tax collectors are somewhat similar, insofar I, I sometimes think of them almost like mafia or people who are caught up in gangs. I mean, I know Roman. We think of the Romans as the legal structure, and it is. But I mean, you're a middleman, right? I mean, how, how would they get people sucked into being a middleman? It's probably people who were like, I don't know, like bookies or what, like people who were already, you know what I mean, kind of caught in some kind of, I mean, you could totally see uh, Romans, again, this is the novel in my head, but the Romans arresting someone who's doing some kind of black market stuff. And then they flip them and they say, well, we could crucify you or you could work this toll booth, right? I, I don't know that, but I'm just saying it's not impossible that... Greed is not the only reason that someone can get sucked into a profession like that. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't really understand that the tax collection system in the Roman Empire. But and you know, I don't, I you know, I, I imagine Zacchaeus had some had some money. You know, probably Matthew had some money. But I'm I'm just guessing. Uh, although these are probably lower level. Like yeah. you said, toll collectors. So these are not. I sometimes not, use that phrase to check. No, these are yeah. not people who are bringing in massive amounts like somebody at the top they're they're doing better than the working poor but they're at the bottom of the you know they're Roman they're just system. getting a little cut in between regions or whatever but massive shame i assume yes so we tend to under underestimate that you know i i often say when i read paul i'm not ashamed of the gospel i think yeah yeah you're not ashamed of the gospel I mean, those words had a lot more weight culture. in that culture and so i don't think we should underestimate how despised that kind of a person might have might have been publicly that that would have that weighs on a person can weigh on a person even if they were an honest broker just their association with the roman yeah, the assumption that you obviously you must be on the cut right so wow that, that that was yeah so there's different kinds of 
of margin. You know, you might you might have some money, but you're on the margins in terms of you know nobody invites you out to lunch. Right. But um, right. Just some thoughts. Yeah. 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 So these are so the prostitutes, tax collectors are highlighted here at the end as I mean it's this is strange, but it's almost I mean, the ultimate authority, the ultimate source of Jesus and John the Baptist authorities from heaven, right? But what's the sign of that authority, right? What's the indication? It's almost as if the repentance of Pharisees and, I mean, excuse me, not Pharisees, of, of prostitutes and tax collectors is almost, I mean, again, it's not the source of John and Jesus' authority, but it is kind of the sign of it, right? It's that these who are cast out, these who are margin to you, these who are shameful to you, their lives are being transformed. They're moving towards, they're entering into the kingdom. Israel's being restored. Yeah, yeah. And these are the lost sheep. I mean, these are the lost coin. These yeah. are the lost, um, what was the other one? Lost coin, lost, lost sheep, lost person, lost son. I mean, if you think of, I mean, because again, there's no break from, I mean, again, our Bibles have these little headings, right? But there, there's no break in the text from verse 27 all the way to 31, right? It's almost a second counter question. What do you think, right? A man had two sons. Um, does, and then they say the first, and, and he says, yeah, tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom ahead of you, right? So that's that restoration of Israel theme, right? The kingdom of God, right? So this is happening. This restoration is happening, and you're resisting it. Which is ironic, maybe not so for the chief priests, but for like Pharisees, I assume that they're all over the restoration of Israel, but to them, it means getting everybody to keep the traditions of the elders. If we could just get all the Israelites to keep the Sabbath. Like one time. Just one time. <laughs> then, you know, Yahweh that would night. send the Messiah and Israel would be restored. And, and there so would be some Pharisees that would be able to be attached to the Baptist movement because they could come in after quite quickly and say, okay, now that you've now that you repented, repented, here's what the... And probably a lot would say, okay. Yeah. I mean, because when you have the zeal, when you have that zeal of the convert, you're willing to, you know, throw anything out and, and try a whole new life, whatever the rule, whatever the authorities say the rules are, you know, there's yeah. an openness to that. So... Th so the Pharisees may have been listening in and kind of been a little more open to what's being said here. The chief priests have no interest in this. So for us, when we're preaching a text like this, when we're not in a setting where the honor-shame dynamics are as dominant, though we still struggle with shame in our modern society, but it operates in a little more of a private way, and, and authority operates differently, I'm just trying to think through how to kind of really get us into this world. Obviously, some storytelling and painting the, the novelization, painting the picture of, of this encounter is going to be key in that sermon. But I wonder what it would look like to start asking our people, you know, what do you have to lose? Or what are you clinging to that makes you not receptive to the new movements of God? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Does that fit with the spirit of the text or am I running in another direction? Uh, to me, it does. Yeah. Uh, what temple room does the Lord need to overthrow to get your attention? Uh. <laughs> um, what tables does he need to overturn in your life because they're just a little too convenient and they're keeping you from paying attention to you know to what he's actually wanting to focus on I, that's just one one thought 
I mean, a lot of this is contextual. You may be, a listener might be thinking of, they might be in a community where they're like, I see a lot of power in my congregation. They're the chief priests in this story, and I am too, and so I got to hear that. What's the call here? And others may be in communities where they they might resonate actually more with the tax collectors and and prostitutes. You might be the ones who are who are experiencing the inclusion of God, and it might be helpful to celebrate that Jesus is defending you. He's sticking up for you. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to spend energy on that. You know what I mean? I have a tendency, uh, and you know, this may be my own need for therapy. We can do some therapy on. I, I feel on like on air right now. No, a lot of us in the church have a sense that it's a very subtle thing, and I, I can't quite express it. We're that we've arrived. We're like the um, the one that says we'd go work in the field. Somehow we subconsciously think, I said I'd go work in the field. I'm good. Yeah. And then we don't actually do anything about it. You know, it's kind of place of privilege or a place of, um, of honor that we think we have that, that doesn't actually translate into following Jesus. I, I can't quite express that very well. I've tried many times, but it's almost, it's, it's a, eternal security is not the right, right word, but kind of a sense that we, we think we're here, and that makes us better, even though the fruits of our life may not be as good as somebody who we kind of make fun of around the water cooler because they're not here, you know, they're in the world. And I don't know, I don't know how to express that, but, but I mean, I feel like Jesus is constantly, and the other parts of the New Testament are constantly kind of saying... Challenging this complacency. Show me your faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. You know, you show me your faith without works, and, and uh, I'll show you my faith by my works. This parable fits that perfectly, um, right? He, one says they're going to do it and doesn't. The other even says they're not. Right, <laughs> and then they do it, and, and that's, yet they're the that, hero. Yeah, that it's about whether or not you end up following Jesus. You know, it's not it's not the path you, not the path that got you there, but did you actually follow Jesus? This whole time, I've been thinking of a sermon by John Wesley, the title of which is "The Causes for the Inefficacy of Christianity," which is a great title, by the way. <laughs> Try that one. Yeah, um, and. Riches is pretty high on the list. But again, it's not because of the money itself. He was, he actually sure. grew, grew up with money and, and, and earned a lot of money, um, but managed it well and, and gave it away as much as possible. It's the, it's the complacency is the issue, um, the complacency. And so if I were preaching on this text, I feel like that would be at the heart of what I'd want to get at is to... I mean, I'd even say to our listeners, if, if you happen to be preaching on this text, teaching on it, or just reflecting on it yourself, maybe go, I mean, all of Wesley's sermons are free online, easy to find, and they're, they're actually, sometimes the language is a little old-fashioned, but, but they're pretty readable, they're very logical, they're very clear, the way they're laid out. To, to take a look at that sermon, it, wouldn't, it would only take 15 minutes to read it, and, and then reflect in our own time, like, what are, what are the things that sap our energy and make us complacent? and put us in the place of the chief priest where we miss what God is doing and do not cooperate with God's movement. We don't enter into the kingdom, as it were. This isn't just saying they're going to heaven in front of you. It's the kingdom's moving in. It's on the move. You know, the community is being restored, and they're, they're a part of it, and you're missing it, right? So um, what are the things that, that yeah, do that? Yeah, you're actually on the margins. 
You think yeah. you're you think you're in the center. Think you're in the center, and that they're on the margins, but actually they're in the center, and you're on the margin. That's right. That's right. Um, I always think of again. I and to know. list a few of those things and explore them. Start with yourself as a preacher or teacher, right? What are the things for me that make me complacent? You know. Um, I don't know if the third soil, or the third, um, uh, you know, where the 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 the, tr- the things of life. Because that seems more like the cares of life squeezing it out. But I mean, I, I always kind of put uh, what you're talking about, complacency, uh, because of comfort, you know, in that third, in the parable of the soils. Well, more money, more problems, right? I mean, like the cares of life are, you know, the more stuff you have, the more stuff that stresses you out, right? I'm worrying about my kids. I'm worrying about my my business. I'm worrying about my job, right? There's a There's a complexity where we can... That crowds uh, out God, or can yes, can crowd out God. can crowd out a kind of simple faith that we need to be aware of. Well, that's good. I think that's that's a good sermon starter, just a starter, but it's good. It's a good yep. place to start. Well, thanks so much, Ken. I had a blast uh, studying Scripture with you. I always, always, always do. do. So good to have you on the show. Thanks to uh, the Called Collective team uh, for your production work. We met, we appreciate it so much. Uh, thanks to Todd and Eric and Tom for helping found this show all those years ago and continuing to support us. Thanks to all you listeners. Make sure to check out uh, other shows by The Called Collective. You can subscribe to and follow this show, but also all the other shows that are on The Called Connective Network, and we encourage you to do so. And with that, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Always great to be with you. Bye-bye. <laughs>